Welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 157, 483, The Year Everything Changes. With the death of Edward IV, the world changed dramatically for a number of people. For Edward's son and heir, he was immediately raised as Edward V and was prepared by the Woodvilles for his coronation. Unfortunately for them, the Duke of Gloucester, Richard, the brother of Edward IV, was also preparing to make a move. The power of the Woodvilles, something that had rankled the aristocracy for the past decade, meant that there were few of the old York loyalists who felt a great deal of loyalty to the Woodvilles. At a time of crisis, with the young king about to ascend to the throne, many felt particularly nervous. Work was done not only to bring the young king to the throne, but also to inform the Duke of Gloucester that his best interests, if he wanted to be Lord Protector, like his father had been before him, would be to get to London fast and to get there before the Woodvilles. Richard justified himself to court and made an effort to come off as someone looking out for the best interests of his nephews over himself. Popular opinion in England in 1483 was that Richard, far from his Shakespearean appearance, was at least in public seen as both a decisive and effective noble and ruler, someone who had quelled unrest in the north and in Wales, and he was seen as the right arm of King Edward, and had been given more and more power due to the death of his brothers, of course the Duke of Clarence being executed a few years earlier. Richard's first move was to stop the procession of the king to London from Ludlow, with his matron uncle Anthony Woodville, the Earl Rivers, and Sir Richard Grey, who had been accompanying him. They met them at Stony Stratford, and there Richard at first befriended Rivers, likely to get the lay of the land before moving on him, and to disarm him from obviously what was about to come. Richard then arrested Grey and Rivers and put the king under his protection. Richard used the excuse that the Woodvilles were looking to seize power and made sure that there was a great deal of incriminating evidence presented of their treachery. Edward was brought into the city as king, and of course Richard was seen carefully as his protector, not his usurper. While we will not dwell a lot on the rule of Richard III, we will say that there was very suspicious things that occurred, which led to his taking over the kingdom. The earliest days from the death of Edward IV to the ascension of Richard to the throne show that he was ruthless, and in typical medieval fashion was well versed on how to force things along the road that he wanted. Playing on the fears of a decade of civil war made it easy for him to take possession of the powers of state and to rule. And yet, Richard had always been loyal to his family. He was a York who was, with his brother, through thick and thin, and always seen as the one you could count on, the one who could lead armies and build consensus. Yet Richard was ambitious, and obviously, when given the chance, was unlikely to bend to those who would work against him, as the Woodvilles would always appear to be doing. The queen certainly would not lie down for her family being exiled from power or from her sons being controlled by Richard. This led to the problem of what to do. Richard wanted to keep power, but how do you do that with the Woodvilles always right there, just one court judgment away from returning for, to power? The queen 
had fled to sanctuary at Westminster. Her brother, Edward Woodville, had taken with him 10,000 pounds and a couple of sturdy ships and had fled to Brittany, avoiding capture in the process. Richard seized Woodville's properties and tried to finish them off as quick as possible because he knew that without the controls of the kingdom as protector in the summer of 1483, he would be pushed aside and struggle to get them back once the coronation took place. Richard was now in a bind and he knew that he could not simply convict Earl Rivers and remove him from influencing the new king Yet, at the same time, he couldn't allow him back into court for fear of what that influence would do. Already, it had been shown that the prince, or king, was not willing to always listen to his uncle. On June 13th, a plan was put into motion. Richard had half of the council arrested and isolated the king and his retinue in another part of the Tower of London. He then executed William Hastings, one of the court loyalists and one-time ally to Richard. The Duke claimed that Hastings' treason was because of witchcraft of the Queen in league with a former mistress of his brother's. This was seen even at that date as some pretty flimsy excuse to murder a man. On June 16th, just three days later, Richard was at Westminster with troops surrounding the Abbey, and through negotiations forced the queen to give up her son, the Duke of York, for his, of course, protection. This closed the loop on the last option for the Woodvilles to seize power back. Both of their heirs were firmly in the hands of Richard, and he felt emboldened enough to cancel Parliament and the coronation which had been set for the 24th, pushing it back to early November. The interesting question of whether his plan was simply to be one of being behind the power, or if his whole goal from the beginning was to take power himself, is of course unknown. Realistically, it appears that as his nephew started to show a sense of independence and difficulty, Richard must have decided that he could not simply let things happen to him. He had seen firsthand how problems had occurred for his father specifically under these circumstances, and there was nothing worse than a powerful queen looking for revenge. There is a great deal of controversy which surrounds the disappearance of King Edward V and his brother Richard, the Duke of uh, York. These so-called princes of the tower and the mystery of their disappearance and probable death would be something for another podcast. Certainly, it's not something I want to delve into here nor do I want to delve into the controversy over it. Some academics go so far as to claim that Margaret Beaufort may have been behind their deaths, which, I mean, if you're looking for the most likely candidate, it still points to Richard III as being the most likely, the one who had the ability and the motive to do it. As much as Margaret Beaufort may have had motive, because she might have wanted to see her son safe, the reality of it was she'd worked for the last half decade to try and get her son his inheritance. She didn't appear to this point to be that fussed about him taking up the crown. So this contention seems to be a stretch at best. But I know for some people who are defenders of Richard III, 
there are some feelings and some fairly strong ones about what happened here. And, and unfortunately, because we have no evidence, there's literally nothing to tell us what happened to these children. We have no clue what to make of it. Now, some have contended that because of the medieval attitude towards children, because most young children were not were considered to be innocent, but later on in life, as, as they grew closer to teen years, there was less of this sense of separation between adulthood and your teens. So thus, a lot of things were looked upon differently, such as being married when you're at 12, um, having children at that age was not seen as a big deal. There was all sorts of things that we in this day and age would not be comfortable with that they didn't care about. But the reality of it is, is that I think regardless, the death of two young people who hadn't even reached the age of medieval adulthood would have been shocking. And certainly the rumors that would flow out of this would create problems for Richard. And it's interesting that he never addresses them, never works to try and explain what happened. He just simply avoids the conversation. Richard, aspiring or not, had not let the trifle problem of two young preteens affect his designs and need for power. Why be the king in name for less than half a decade to a kid who might get rid of him when he could rule himself for decades? Certainly the obvious answer is pretty clear, and this goes back to my contention that while you might be able to claim there were other people with motive, there's very few that had opportunity the way the king did. On June 25th, the original day of coronation of Edward V, it was then promoted by Richard through some clergy that far from an heir, Edward is actually illegitimate, as was his brother, due to the king and Elizabeth Woodville not being officially or correctly married, making them unfit for the throne, something that also would have seen Elizabeth Woodville, the younger sister, being also deemed as not a part of the lineage of the throne, something which will be important later, and one of the reasons why the Tudors went back on this whole argument. Something that, very obviously, was all Richard's doing, or at least his supporters, but leaning on some old propaganda scandal that the Lancastrians had leaned into at one time. Instead, on, or at least their Yorkist allies, Instead, on July 6th, Richard was crowned King Richard III with a band of 5,000 northern troops stationed around London, making it very clear that he was in charge and would brook no dispute to his ascension. One of those initially arrested, then released during the kerfuffle with the council, was Lord Thomas Stanley, husband to Margaret Beaufort. Stanley somehow once again survived this uprising to find himself in the good graces of court once more. Likely there was this in part because of his powerful con lands that he controlled. Likely also, in part, it came down to the power he wielded through, among other things, the threat of his son Thomas's being able to raise troops and to cause an actual rebellion against Richard, which would have created more and more trouble. Something a shaky king would not want to have happen. Of course, combine that with the Lancastrian heir apparently in the fold of Stanley, just waiting across the sea 
and it becomes obvious that the Stanleys were now in a position of strength and were needed to be mollified. It would be Margaret who would in fact carry the Queen's train in the coronation as she once again worked with her new family in power. If anyone ever doubted her, Margaret was showing just how formidable she could be as she worked the power politics of medieval England. Henry Tudor's mother was very able and a strong woman and was not very easily dismissed. She again raised her desire to see her sons be given his inheritance and receive a pardon, allowing him to, among other things, be betrothed to Elizabeth Woodville. Again, Margaret was trying to gain her son and have him linked to the family of the Yorks. Across the channel, the death of Edward. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. Had given Duke Francis of Brittany the opportunity to all but free the Tudors who were now allowed to travel across Brittany as he was no longer afraid of the English, or at least no longer afraid of the power that Edward wielded. Henry and Jasper then had spent over a decade in exile, and while mostly in luxurious prisons, they had kept them safe. Likely during these years, Henry gained a great deal of education, and between this and the chaos of his earlier life, would have had a great influence on his opinions and attitudes certainly something that would lead to the reputation he had of being dour and very stoic. He was still a young man at this point in his 20s. His claim to England and Wales had long since gone by the wayside, and simply returning from exile seemed to almost be impossible. Few would expect what was coming for him and his uncle. In the light of what had been happening, allies were being made in England that would shock anyone who was alive a decade earlier. Richard, for his part, after talking to Margaret, did exactly the opposite of what she had hoped. He sent an envoy to Francis to get him to continue to keep Henry away from England, and effectively on permanent imprisonment. This would be something he needed as he knew that Henry was one of the last real problems for him, as he was one of the few remaining heirs to the throne that could be called a legitimate heir. No matter how tangential that connection was to the throne, Henry Tudor was a threat that all Yorkists wanted dealt with. Francis, on the other hand, had been knee-deep in politics his whole life and had learned at the feet of the master, Louis XI. 
He used the threat of the French Kring to try and blackmail Richard out of money and manpower, including demanding 6,000 archers to be on the ready of two months' notice to be shipped from England to Brittany, something that neither side would acknowledge would actually help Brittany protect itself from France, who would have a much bigger army, but it was something that he had demanded of Edward previously, so it was something that he could use to manipulate him with, along with, of course, the money. The demands, of course, were too much for Richard to pay, and he was left frustrated by Francis's machinations. Both the Tudors and the newly arrived Edward Woodville were free to move around Brittany, and there was nothing Richard could do about it. Soon, both nobles would have different problems to deal with that would put this whole matter aside. In France, Louis XI died on August 30th, leaving his young son Charles as king, creating a massive power vacuum as the always volatile country once again leaned into near civil war. Francis would have enough to deal with trying to create his own sphere of influence and wouldn't need to worry about England. Richard, for his own part, had his own issues. At some point in August, it became apparent that he had no interest in freeing his nephews from the Tower of London, where they were imprisoned, and the public and nobility started to become more and more suspicious of the king. No matter what the era, the idea of children that could be treated so callously had become something of a point of contention for everyone. As I said earlier, regardless of what people think about children in the medieval period, the reality of it was is that this idea that these two could be kept in the tower and kept away and just basically kept under lock and key forever, effectively, didn't sit well with some. And certainly the idea that these boys were seen as innocent and something to be protected, obviously it were colored now by the propaganda of the Tudors later. But the re I think most people even in that era were, were not enamored with this and were not happy with this. And so themselves would be contending with this argument and this desire and trying to fight against this. And Margaret Beaufort, in the midst of all of this, reached out to the former Queen Elizabeth Woodville. Whether Margaret liked Elizabeth or just tolerated her for the sake of Henry is unknown. Of course, they had been together as, I can't really call them friends, but certainly associates in previous times in court. And of course, she had at the very least, had worked with her to try and create the levers she needed to try and get Henry back overseas. So I think there was at least some respect there, if nothing else. It was now apparent, however, that if these sons of Elizabeth were dead, then it likely meant that the only other real heir was now Henry. And, of course, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And for Elizabeth, there was no doubt that Richard was the enemy. He had killed her brother, exiled another, and likely caused the death of her boys. At the very least, that was the thought at the time. The queen was about as angry as she could ever have been, and as powerful a woman in medieval court as she was, was not someone you could ignore or just avoid. And these two women, Elizabeth and Margaret, began a conspiracy against Richard, this time with the Tudors and Woodvilles at the center of court, 
with the idea that Henry would be king and young Princess Elizabeth made his queen. Margaret sent her physician, Louis Carleon, as a go-between in the negotiations, and apparently Carleon was such a good physician that both women chatted freely with him. And obviously the two women could not be seen together with the situations that they were both in with Margaret's husband in the middle of Richard's court and Elizabeth being holed up in the uh, Westminster Abbey herself. At some point during this planning stage, and as it started to gain traction, Margaret learned that the Duke of Buckingham, her nephew, was also had designs on the throne. Buckingham also had another tangential claim to the throne through the Bulford line, and the old Ely priest, John Morton, was whispering in his ear that he needed to take back England from Richard. So instead of pushing Henry forward, Elizabeth and Margaret instead propped up the Duke to form the opposition to Richard, with Henry coming in. Rather than acting as monarch in waiting, Henry would instead be in a position to help the Duke. Buckingham himself reached out to Welsh nobility and soldiers, gaining a small army, and in October on the 18th launched his bid for power. Margaret, for her part, tried to get Henry to come home and with help of troops and ships from Brittany, but as they arrived across the channel, weather kept him hemmed in from being able to land, and unfortunately Henry was unable to assist, and as Buckingham marched, he too ran into weather issues as he could not get his men across the Severn River in any sort of order, and in the end his army started to melt as, of course, the pressure of the king started to come down on him, and within two weeks on November 4th, he was executed after being captured and was yet another failed pretender on the list, and one of the last other than Henry, that really could logically be a problem for Richard. And with this, the end of 1483 came to a close. Richard on the throne, Henry still stuck in Brittany, but his mother and her friend, at least at this point her ally, Elizabeth Woodville, plotting yet again on how to deal with Richard III. And with that, I'd like to thank you for listening. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can always reach me at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com, or you can reach out to me on Twitter at Welsh History Pod, or on Facebook. You can join our community there at facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. And if you feel so inclined to help out, um, I also have a Patreon which is running and. Uh, you can reach out to that at patreon.com forward slash Welsh history. Thank you everybody for listening. Have yourselves a great day and we'll talk to you later. Take care. Bye-bye. This has been a Distractions Media production. For more info, you can check out everything we do at distractionsmedia.com. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts 
and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read.